I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Dan Yates, co-founder of Opower, a software company focused on energy efficiency. Opower works with utilities to monitor how much energy a consumer uses and gives households and businesses incentives to lower their energy consumption. The idea is that through the use of behavioral science techniques such as peer pressure or peer proof, people will feel more compelled to act more responsibly, at least to keep up with their neighbors. Dan started Opower in 2007 with his Harvard College classmate Alex Lasky. The company is based in Arlington, Virginia. Prior to starting Opower, Dan launched EduSoft, a software company focused on public school assessments. EduSoft was sold for approximately $40 million to Houghton Mifflin in 2004. Dan is an avid hula hooper. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I heard you like giggle a little bit after hula hooper. Is that true? (laughs) I guess I'm a good hula hooper more than an avid hula hooper. (laughs) It's become, a, it's become a running joke in the company after the first company picnic we had where there was a hula hoop contest that I nearly won but did not win. Other than hula hooping at your company, can you describe what else you do uh, at Opower? How does Opower work? Well, is there anything else to do other than hula hoop? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> yeah, Opower is a software company. We, we work with utilities to help them transform the way they deliver information to their consumers. People just don't really know enough about their energy use, and they're not motivated in the way they could be if they had the right information. And if we could just give them the right info, we could change energy behavior. And so what we do is we use behavioral science techniques, and in doing so, we've shown that we really can substantially reduce consumption consistently and persistently. Uh, And on average, we drive about a 2% savings, which for an individual, not much. What is that, like $40 a year or so? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for a utility, I mean, it's 160 million dollars uh, over the over the you know over our customer base per year. And why are utilities uh, caring to collaborate with you? Um, why do they have the incentive to decrease energy use? I know it has something to do with state level uh, compliance. Uh, That's right. But can you explain that further? Legislatures have decided, hey, there's a better way. Let's roll instead of you know to meet demand. Um, let's pass a standard that asks our utilities to run programs to help people save energy. And so then the utility puts forward a portfolio of programs, things like light bulb subsidies and O-Power. And then what happens is they they put a small tax on the bill. And the only programs they run are ones that actually save you more money than they cost. So the tax is always less than your savings. So the, the, the key thing is that utilities with that tax, they get to recover any of the revenue they would have lost. So they're still made whole. So that way everybody, you know, everybody wins. We're talking about um, incentives based on behavioral science techniques. What incentives are most powerful for people to to reduce their consumption? The most well-known of of the techniques that we employ is the neighbor comparison. It's how we started. So the first product we brought to market was actually a mailed paper report, and we chose the mail because utilities don't have enough customer email addresses. It shows people how their energy use compares to their neighbors and then gives them targeted recommendations on how to save. But the peer proof is is a very powerful tool, but it's one of many. Mm -hmm. So as an example, commitment is another very powerful behavioral science technique. Typically, customers who set a goal to save energy save over 8% a year. A third example is just rapid feedback. You see a lot of this dynamic in other areas such as exercise, right? You give people uh, instant feedback. They, they're setting their goals. There's the social pressure. Absolutely. Where else do you, do you see this Well, happening? I think the whole, there's a whole trend now of the measured self. 
all of these different wristwatches that track your heartbeat and check change, you know, how many steps you've taken, they're not doing anything to you other than giving you feedback. But what we measure is what we modify. So the behavioral science is more of a tool to to grab the customer and engage them about themselves. How are you using science behavioral techniques in your personal life? For example, like with you have a baby, you're married. Do you see yourself like constantly applying these techniques uh, in other ways personally? I've been I've been accused anxiously in business cases situations of being an expert negotiator because people fear that I have some mastery of the behavioral science sphere mm. that I I, I I must admit I'm, I don't think I have. Mm. Um, but yeah, you can't help but think about these techniques. In addition to the behavioral science component of the company, uh, you also have a pretty robust data analytics feature. Can you describe that some more? We can help people understand their usage in very easy, timely, um, and, and important to act on ways. As a simple example, we do a predictive high bill forecast. So we've all had that experience where you get that bill in the mail in the middle of winter, and it's $500 or $300, and it blows you away. Now... You get a call from us, like a fraud alert. Mm. Hey, we're 12 days into the month. Uh, you look like you're on track for a $300 bill. And what a relief, for, especially for a low-income customer. They receive phone calls? That's right, we do. Are you, are you the voice uh, for these calls? Because you have that voice, or you're impersonating that voice quite well. You have received a high bill. No, <laughs> it's not me. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Dan Yates, co-founder of Opower, an energy efficiency company that partners with utility companies to reduce energy consumption. The utility companies pay Opower for its software and receives payments from the government as an incentive to encourage energy reduction. Now, when you first uh, thought of founding this company, did you have this behavioral science uh, in mind, or is it something that you arrived at after coming up with the idea? Actually, the behavioral science component was one of the original pieces. And you have a, a, a chief scientist. Uh, his name is Robert Cialdini. He's a social psychologist. How integral was he in the founding of the company? Yeah, so the way we got started was we had a, we had a simple idea that there were a billion utility bills going out a year. Uh, to Americans, and there was this huge missed opportunity to educate people about their energy use. But that was, and, and we knew there was energy efficiency funding out there, but we, there wasn't enough to start a business. And then we got lucky, and this is where the serendipity came in. We were introduced to the research of Robert Cialdini, who had just the year prior concluded a study uh, with the Hewlett Foundation in San Francisco, or Palo Alto, rather, um, that showed conclusively that if you gave people information about their energy use relative to the average of similar sized homes in the area that they would reduce their consumption. That, How were you introduced to him? By whom? I was talking about there's a lot of people and I was waving my utility bill around at breakfast with this woman, Ria Sue, who's the Hewlett Foundation. And her eyes went wide and she said, you won't believe this. We literally just got a research report on this very fact, you know, hmm. two weeks ago. And she scanned and sent me the studies. And then we reached out to Bob and it's been, you know, that's, that's the, the beginning of the story. Could you explain the study that he did with the fans? The study was to try and convince, to try and convince residential homeowners to make a simple, low-cost efficiency move of turning off their air conditioner and switching to a fan in the evening. And they did a door hanger campaign. And they put a door hanger on each door with four different messages. The first message simply said, 
It was a monetary message. You can save $50 every month if you do this. Second message was about the environment. You can help keep the skies clean for California if you do this. Third message was about preserving resources for the future and being a good citizen. And then they measured those first three against a control group which received no message. And they saw no impact in consumption as if they hadn't come. And this is, as again, an expensive way to go about marketing. So they had a fourth group that got a message that simply said, in a recent survey of your neighbors, three quarters of them say they turn off their AC and switch to a fan in the evening. Join your neighbors. With no justification for what the personal benefit was, the economic benefit, the environmental benefit, none of that. Just do what the rest of the folks are doing. And that group saw a 6% reduction in consumption. Why were you and Al- Alex focused on doing something in the energy arena? If you had started a company in education, for example. So I started an educational software company called EduSoft, and we sold the company, and I had the opportunity to take some time off. And I talked my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, into taking a year-long trip with me. Uh, we bought a Toyota 4Runner, we shipped it up to Alaska, and we drove the full Pan American Highway from tip to tip. So from the Arctic Sea to Patagonia. That's right. How did you meet? How did you meet Toby? We met at a we met at a wedding in Birmingham, Alabama. So here you are on a road trip in Latin America, and what connective tissue is there to uh, to O Power? So we took this trip. Among other things, we were listening to books on iPod, and we had we had downloaded Jared Diamond's Collapse, uh, which is really the story of human populations throughout time that have had ecological collapse, ranging from the Mayans to um, the inhabitants of Easter Island, uh, and you know how through leadership collapse can be averted, and without it, you can have true catastrophic you know ecological degradation. And as we were driving the drive, it felt like I was watching the movie in real time accompanying this book. What are examples of that? When we were driving through Guatemala, we were driving across this large plain with cows and bucolic scene. And then we arrived at this outcropping of rock. And on top of this rock, probably a couple acres worth, was the densest rainforest you could you could think of. And it hit both of us. This huge plain we were driving through had historically been a rainforest. But when you see those things and you see how stark it is and you realize how much we have changed the earth, that's when it hits you. Toby Whitman, you're you're now wife. You were still boyfriend and girlfriend on your Latin American trip. What is something surprising that she learned about you on that trip or or not on that trip? She thought I was going to propose when we got to the southern tip and she (laughs) hadn't talked to me about that expectation. And so I didn't do that. And that was a shocker. So I made it up to her. Um, what I explained was that I didn't. I had. I felt odd proposing to her half, half being a year away from friends and family and feeling disconnected from them, which is it was just how I felt. I felt like in many ways proposing was more of a public thing than a private thing because I knew I wanted to marry her. Mm-hmm. So to make it up, I went and videoed all of her friends and our families, telling them me telling them that I was going to propose to her and asking them what they thought. And then I proposed by showing her this video of basically everyone else knowing before she knew, uh, which was a lot of fun. So here you are. You and Alex are starting O Power. You both don't have a background in the energy industry. What were the first things that you did? As we were just starting this, we got we were we were talking to some folks in Texas who told us that we just had to get down there and get involved with what was going on at the on the legislative side. And there was a bill being introduced around energy efficiency. And we flew out with not even in, not even yet incorporated, 
but with a blow up, you know, mock up of our energy report, three, two foot by three foot foam core blow up, marched around with no company, with no brand name, with not even business cards. We managed to meet with all of the key legislators and we got legislation written into this bill that that authorized the utilities to use this public efficiency funding for home energy reports. Mm. Now, never mind, there were a few dies that we didn't dot and teach didn't cross and we weren't able to use that funding for years to come. But for us, it was this amazing realization that if we could move the needle that far with so little, that there was a real appetite for this. Yeah, it was incredibly self-actualizing. Yes. So then we said, okay, let's do this. And that's when we got serious. We raised some money. We incorporated the company and we went out to and we hired some people and we went out to go sell utilities. Do you have a story or an anecdote about your early meetings with some of these utilities? Well, our, our first utility that we sold was uh, the city of Sacramento SMUD, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. Allie Crawford, who was a program manager, had funding for a carbon calculator, uh, which was tools to to enter in the different parts of your energy use uh, throughout your life and ca- calculate your total carbon footprint. Uh, and we showed her what we were doing, and she just was fascinated by it and, and, and thought, if you can do my calculator and this, I can, we can work together. And mm-hmm. so we went back and in a 10-day period worked nights and weekends and built a carbon calculator. Were there other utilities or other recollections of meetings with utilities uh, who were not as uh, amenable to what you were doing? No, I mean, you, can, you, can, you can't succeed without hearing no a hundred times. Right. So what are examples of, of some of those? Most of those are customers of ours now, so uh, I don't have any great examples I want to share. We talk about uh, getting funding in the early days, and uh, NEA in D.C. was one of your earliest investors, and uh, there's a story of Harry Weller, I think he's a partner at NEA, hearing what you were doing, and he said, utilities give you data and they're paying you? How do we invest? Yeah, so... Harry had a very clear vision, which took me a long time to fully appreciate, that the real power in our business was that we were being put in a position with all of the utilities' energy data to be able to help them on a whole host of consumer-facing uh, issues they had. And that the, the fact that they were entrusting us with their data put us in a phenomenally strategic place in the landscape. And then that they were paying us for that, as opposed to us begging them for it, was even more astonishing. I want, I want to talk about your upbringing, uh, your early life. You grew up in San Diego. Uh, your dad was in the Air Force. Yeah. And your mom was a Hebrew school teacher. That's right. What did your dad do in the Air Force? He was a pilot. He was an instructor pilot with a T-33 jet and then he, or turboprop rather, uh, and then he flew C-130s uh, for 10 years, which are those huge cargo planes. Was he ever in action? He was. Uh, he was in Vietnam. He flew air support in um, Zaire back when we thought that um, Mobutu was a good guy to back up, which is, you know, not his, not his proudest day, but he was a good, you know, he was a good airman. After, after my dad left the military, he went into defense contracting. He worked for a couple different firms. We ended up moving to San Diego where he worked at General Dynamics. We always like to put a bow around like how our childhood influenced what we were what we're doing now. But like what what are what are certain um, elements of your youth that feature prominently for you? Yeah, I think for me, if I can draw a line back from O'Power to my youth, it's conservation and computer science. I took a class in 11th grade in 
AP Pascal and loved it. AP Pascal being a programming language. Uh, exactly right. It felt like you were bringing the computer to life. To be clear, I was not a hacker who spent their nights and weekends uh, writing code all the time. But it, but it, I, I said this is what I want to do. It's where I want to where I want to go to what I want to study in college, etc. Mm-hmm. And the other thing for me is, I grew up in a family where we would reuse plastic bags and. We always turned out the lights and we barely ran the heat and these kinds of things. I, it established deeply ingrained in me an aesthetic that we shouldn't be wasteful. And my, my mom, when my mom grew up in Israel in the 50s, uh, they had nothing. You know, and my dad grew up very poor. So I grew up with parents who had, had their upbringing in a totally different time and era where they were extremely conservative with things. After college, you worked at a music startup uh, called Echo Networks. That's Uh, right. From there, you then started EduSoft, which is this company focused on the public school assessments area. And Jake Himmelman was your co-founder at EduSoft, and you had known him from Harvard as well. That's right. Uh, What is he doing now? Jake Himmelman has started a network of private, very, very low-cost schools in Kenya. He has... I believe over 50,000 students now in his schools. Hmm. Um, and the schools cost less than the public schools. And they have perfect teacher attendance and they have significantly higher student scores. And he's scaling this now across Africa. And incidentally, you were raising money for EduSoft in 2000. So even even though the story ends well, you had kind of a tumultuous beginning, at least uh, raising money is my assumption. It was brutal. I heard a story that you, um, when potential investors would visit, you would fill your desks uh, in the office to make it seem like you were busier <laughs> than you were. Is that That's is that right. true? <laughs> so we had... Who's, whose idea was that? It was Jay's, of <laughs> course. Jay was a uh, Jay was a magician as a kid and a vacuum cleaner salesman, and so he had all the great tricks. It was actually the first time Houghton Mifflin came to our offices. We wanted to appear bigger, and we told our friends we would buy them coffee and lunch if they would come and work out of desks and our office from 10 a.m. to noon. Mm. And we put we put um, phones on the desk and made it all look like we had 12 people at the company when we were, there was only four of us. The problem was... Two months later, the same guy came back, and we were like, what are we going to do? we got to get the same friends in. <laughs> so don't be fooled. If you enter the office of O-Power, some might be paid actors. I can, I can affirm we have no paid actors. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Dan Yates, co-founder of O-Power. If you'd like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org or follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. From Scratch.